0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Word up, word up, word up. What's happening, fam? All right. So I am Arnaldo, and I'm the lead pastor over at Anchor Southwest. Southwest. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be back here. Uh, It's a bit nostalgic. It's only been about five months, but um, it's nice to be back uh, with y'all as we continue through this series in the book of Ephesians. And as I've studied this letter, it just keeps on getting richer and richer. And I'm really excited about what the Lord has for you here at City, as well as what the Lord may have for us over at Southwest over the next couple months as we work through this letter to the churches in Ephesus is not only in this space, but also as you uh, dig in in triplets and in gospel communities. And the book of Ephesians, I want to remind you is this. Well, I'm not reminding you. I'm re- I was reminding like our church over there, but I, I want to tell you that the book of Ephesians is this. I love the way Tim Mackey over at Bible Project says it. He says this, that the book of Ephesians is a community's guide for comprehending, right, and responding to to the apocalypse of the crucified and risen king of the cosmos. Now, real quick, we've been using this word apocalypse over at Southwest as we've walked through this. And apocalypse, uh, in what we normally think about it, is that it talks about the end of the world. But the word apocalypse simply means unveiling and uncovering. It's a word that you can use to say, I've I've uncovered something. And so uh, the book of Ephesians was designed to help us comprehend and respond to the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And we need both the comprehending, but equally we need the embodied response to what Paul is calling us to. Because I want to remind you of something that knowledge is just a rumor until it lives in the bones. Knowledge is just a rumor until it lives in the bones the gut, in the muscle. And so we can climb the great heights of Paul's theology in this letter, and we can plumb the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ, but until these realities, they live in our bones, in our guts, until they become reflexes in our bodies, this is all just a rumor. And so my desire is that we would practice these truths, not just memorize them or uh, remember them, but, but practice them. And so with that, let me pray that the Lord would open up our hearts and our minds for what he has for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that, in fact, the truest thing in the universe is that you are good. You've given us enough health and enough energy to be here this morning. We thank you. And we just ask you now, Lord, that you would Go before us, be with us. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and help me to remember the things that will be helpful. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that those who uh, may be far from you, those who may be inching near, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring them over the threshold, Lord, that you would bring them from death to life now. This is not our work, this is yours, but we partner with you in this and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you something up on the screen. I hope it comes up. Let me see if it comes up. And uh, no, yes, no, yes. Is it coming up? All right, well, <laughs> visualize this. I was going to show you, uh, I was actually going to do some crowd participation. There's this logo of uh, this androgynous thing man or woman, I'm not sure what it is, but it's yellow. Uh, it's a bear, it, it's a, it's a, it is. Who knows what's, what this is? Hands up. <laughs> Nobody. This is amazing. Okay, great. This is the logo for America Online Instant Messenger. Now this, exactly, this is back when 56k modems were around, uh, where I had to beg my mother to use the phone line. There was such a thing where internet was on through copper wiring through the phone lines. And this is actually a very important symbol for me because this is where my wife of 15 years now, Catherine and I, started our relationship. Uh, we <laughs> began talking online over 20 years ago. Uh, I know, it, the computers existed, the internet was around back then, and this was the place where our budding relationship really begin, began to become solidified. Now, fast forward a couple decades, and here we are. But this long-distance relationship where Catherine was here in Sydney, I was over in Brooklyn, was very difficult. It was incredibly expensive to maintain. And as I've thought about that time in particular, while we were long-distance for a couple of years, uh, I thought about what, what were the things that we had to fight and the one thing that came to the top for us was this, this feeling of alienation, being alienated from this other person, being separated, not only physically, but culturally as well. I'm Puerto Rican, Catherine is Greek-Egyptian, and plus there was a 16,000-kilometer space between us. But when I migrated here in 2007, there was a whole other way that I felt alienated. I mean, you may not think it, but man, it took me so much time to understand your language. Australian is weird. My first job was uh, at a call center, at a national call center, so you can imagine how difficult that was for me. And I still don't know whether you're talking about afternoons or avocados, but I'm getting there, right? But it was quite a while before I felt that I could fit in. It took about seven years of these feelings of separation, of alienation, and this takes a terrible psychological toll on you. And little by little over the years, this felt like home, and this is indeed home to me. Now, this is really home to me, to the point when, when I go and visit New York, uh, I often find myself saying, I want to go back home, and this is, this is home. And our passage today deals with another kind of alienation, the deepest kind of alienation, not just an alienation of, of time or space. But the alienation of our souls and our bodies, the deepest kind of alienation. And and this is what Paul is getting at here. Simply this, that the cross of Christ, in this passage, he'll talk about this, that the cross of Christ obliterates not just the alienation between us and God. That's how we've normally thought about the cross, and that is right. But it doesn't just do that. It doesn't just obliterate the alienation between us and God, but it obliterates the alienation between us and us. And the gospel, this true story of what God has done in Christ to reconcile all things to himself is not just about your personal relationship with Jesus. The gospel is an announcement. It is good news that in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, he has defeated the powers on the cross, the powers of Satan and sin, and it celebrates this new reality that death will no longer have the last word. The gospel is not just a religious reality, but it is a political one, a social one. The gospel deals with our relationships with one another just as much as it deals with our relationship with a holy God. We need to seriously once again Recapture this central fact that the gospel is not just about me and Jesus, but about we and Jesus and the rest of creation. And Paul displays this in this book in one major way. When you're reading the book of Ephesians and you see all these yous, Y-O-U, you, right? This word you. It is never, not once in the book of Ephesians is it talking about you, singular you. It is always yous and y'all. That's what Paul is talking about here. Whenever you see the word you in Ephesians, you need to train yourself to say something that may annoy you, like yous, y'all, because that is what he is getting at here. Because through the cross, Christ came to do something, to usher in a new reality, a new reality where barriers are removed between folk. The cross of Christ, remember, obliterates not just the alienation between us and God, it does that. It absolutely does that. But it's also come to obliterate the alienation between us and us. And we're going to tackle this by looking at the why, the how, and the so what. Come with me again to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, therefore remember... And what Paul does here, as usual, he he comes with the sobering news, the sobering news of where we stood apart from the gift of grace. And he calls us to remember. He calls us to remember this thing, where we stood in relation to God's ancient promises to Abraham. We stood outside of these covenant promises. We were strangers and we were outsiders. And Paul reminds these non-Jews, these Gentiles, that they were called by the insiders the uncircumcision. Now, unfortunately, we can uh, really try to, to tidy up our translations of scripture, but basically what this is saying here is, is kind of crude. What people were calling, what the Jews were calling non-Jews was the people of the foreskin. Yuck, Right. And that, 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 like, should he say that up there? Yeah, no, I probably shouldn't. But I need you to understand this hostility that stood between these two kinds of people, those people of the foreskin. This was a term of exclusion and derision. It was meant, it was designed to keep people out, not draw them in. But nevertheless, there was this real, permanent, seemingly permanent separation between the Jew, the people of God, and the Gentile, those outside of the community of God. Religiously, they were separate from God. Socially, they were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Psychologically, there was no hope. And Paul doesn't mince any words here. And these couple of verses take what he did in, in verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, and it turns the focus. It's, a, it's another angle on the same reality. And you remember, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago when, when uh, Matt preached this, these two words in, cha- in verse 4, but God, turns the whole thing around. And here what Paul says in verse 13 is, but now but now in Messiah Jesus, this divine turnaround. At one point, you were separated from the Messiah, from Christ, but now. At one point, you were alienated from the people of God. That is your situation, but now. You were in the world without God. You were in the world without hope, but now. And Paul here goes on to talk about the how. How is it that at one point we were alienated, at one point you were outside of the covenant people of God, but now in Messiah Jesus. Read with me from verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new person, one new man, in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off in peace. To those who were near, for through him we both have access to, in one spirit, to the Father. And this is the million dollar question that much of scripture is trying to answer. How is God going to bring to pass these promises, these ancient promises that he made through Abraham? How will the nations, how will we, how will the world, how will Gentiles be blessed? Through Israel? Well, they failed. Through David, right, he failed. Through Solomon, he failed. Through the return of the exiles, well, they failed. Through the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, well, that failed. Through the rebuilding of the temple, well, we know that that failed. And Paul's answer here is the blood of Christ. That it's the blood of Christ that will bring the blessings that were promised to Abraham to the nations. And now, of course, it is a reference to his physical blood. He was probably type O negative, because I am, best kind of blood, universal. But it's not just talking about the physical blood that poured from his brow when he was struggling in the garden. It's not just talking about the blood that was poured out of his body while he hung on a cross for hours. You see, this is talking about blood that was represented in the temple. You see, God gave Moses way back when, this great prophet, instructions in the wilderness as to how it was that he was to meet with his people. And he gave him the instructions of the temple, the the tabernacle, this mobile temple that wandered with them for 40 years. Now, we're going to do a whole series on the book of Ephesians at the end of the year, so these comments will be brief. But the whole point of the tabernacle was this was to have a place where heaven and earth would overlap. That's the point of the tabernacle, to have a place where God and humanity can meet. And blood was itself a visual and visceral reminder that there lay a huge chasm between heaven and earth, between the otherness and goodness of God and the brokenness of humanity. And temporarily, this blood of bulls and goats would allow an overlap of heaven in this tabernacle. But as we know, the book of Hebrews reminds us that this was not permanent. And here, Paul is using that imagery And he's reminding us that it's through the blood of Jesus that we are brought into the presence of God. And furthermore, Christ doesn't just bring us together with God, but he brings us together with us, with the other. He brings together humanity and humanity. Because remember, the cross does not just obliterate the hostility between us and God, but that between us and us. And he does this by tearing down the wall. Tearing down this wall of hostility that stood between us, Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider. What is Paul getting at here? What is this wall of hostility? Now, Paul's doing something really cool here. I believe he's pointing to something real, a real physical structure that was there to keep non-Jews out. There's a slide behind me now. Uh, where this is a representation, this is just a model of the temple that Jesus would have been accustomed to. This is a place where he escaped from, his, he ran away from his parents, he was hanging out in this place, and this was the place where he would have tossed the money changers. This was the temple that Jesus knew growing up. Now, I wanna walk over here and I wanna show you some, some places here. So just outside here, you see this barricade if you can see it? Yes? Now that barricade there, that is up to where non-Jews can go to. And then when you go inside in this court here, this was the court of women. So Jewish men and Jewish women were able to hang out here. This is where the good morning tea was. And then if you were to bring a a sacrifice, only men, only Jewish men were able to transcend these steps to hand the sacrifice over to the priest. And they would slaughter the, the, the goat, the bull, just on the other side. And inside here, you'd only have Priests, And further inside, you'd only have the high priest in the Holy of Holies once a year. Do you see this stratification? Now, that that wall that I pointed to in the beginning, that wall, Josephus, a a Jewish historian, he says this. It was about 1.4 meters high, and it read this. All across that wall, all across that barrier, read this in both Greek and Latin. No foreigner is to enter within the railing and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Like our welcoming team needs to take some tips from this guy here because those are the kind of signs that we, right? Like this is is wild. This was created to keep people out. And so Paul here is thinking, yes, this is the wall that came down, but he goes much deeper in verse 15. He says this, that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. This is where it gets a bit dicey. Because if we misunderstand what Paul is saying here, what's happening here, we will be like the people who arrested him because they also misunderstood his mission. They also misunderstood what he is saying here. In fact, the beginning of chapter 3 says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. So, like what we're talking about today, he's saying, For this reason, because of this, I was put in prison. Paul has a complex relationship to the ordinances, to the law, to the what, what what we call the Torah of God. And Christians have have often thought that what Paul did in his ministry was he wanted to get rid of the law altogether. He wanted to abolish the law. He wanted to get rid of the law. But I want to walk us through. Paul's relationship with these ordinances, with the law. The first thing that Paul believes about the law is that he believed it was holy and good. That the law was holy and good. And he says so much so in Romans 7. When he says so, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we will often overreach in a major and unhelpful way to say that Paul wanted to get rid of the law all together but Paul's relationship is multi-layered and it's complex so even while he believes that the law is holy and good he also believed that the law could not produce what it commanded the law was given to the people of Israel to make them distinct to make them separate for the sake of the world not to be against it they were to be different for the sake of the world but we know That from the very beginning, while Moses is up on a mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Aaron, being the fool, he's like, well, I just threw some gold in and, uh, well, a calf came out. Right, like even at day dot, Israel fails to keep the covenant, the law, the Torah. The law could not produce what the law required. Now, something isn't bad when it doesn't do what it wasn't designed to do. So a traffic light. A traffic light is designed to keep us safe and to control the flow of traffic. Now, if I run a red light, is the red light defective? Class, no, it's not, (laughs) right? We should stop, I should stop. It's telling me to stop, and yet I run the red light. We don't blame the red light in the same way The law itself tells us how to live righteously when we place the wrong expectations on the law and then those false expectations aren't met. We don't blame the law. We blame what Paul calls the power of sin. Going deeper, in fact, Paul could say that it was the commandment, even while remaining good and holy, that aroused sin. The law being good arouses the bad i was at a beautiful wedding in the hunter a couple weekends ago and it was good food good wine good people and i'm in a conversation with someone and she says there's there's a light behind you over there don't look at it because it's gonna burn your retinas you know do i have to tell you what i actually did i looked at that sucker man like there was no tomorrow that there was something, she told me not to do it. I'm like, you, you don't tell me what, I, I will do with my retinas what I please. And if you have kids at home, man, you know this dynamic. Don't is not a strange word in my house. It, it, we, we use that word quite a bit. And, but it wasn't until I told Evie, hey, Evie, don't draw on the walls that we birthed Picasso. <laughs> and there, there's something in us that even the law... Being good, Paul says, is co-opted by the power of sin, and it arouses the very thing it lovingly warns against. And the last point is that the law that was supposed to be used to attract was used to repel. The law that was supposed to be used to attract Was used to repel the laws and the ordinances were the raw materials that God gave to a group of people to build bridges to them. To live such beautiful lives that they would be compelled to come and worship Israel's God Yahweh. That was the point of the law. But Israel used these raw materials and instead of building bridges, they built walls. Israel, just like us, we become proud of our election. We become proud of being, quote-unquote, chosen. And what we we do, we, we begin to use the very things that were designed for people who are far from Jesus to keep them out. The very things given for the sake of others we use to exclude others. And this is why Paul says that now, God in Christ, he disarmed the law As the thing that marked the people of God and no longer would you need to become a Jew in order to worship Yahweh, in order to worship God. And this is Paul's complex relationship to the Torah of God that would eventually get him arrested. He loves the law, but he understands that as good as it is, it became a wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile because of the power of sin. And it's in the body of Christ, it's in the flesh of the Messiah hanging on the cross that, Paul's, that Paul sees this wall in ruins on the floor. And so, this reality, this wall coming down in the body of Christ, it affects your reality, it affects our reality, it affects the fabric of the universe. Now, the promises given to Abraham, which are fulfilled in Jesus, are now ours. Why? Because now we are in Christ. And paul continues in verse 19 he says this on the so what what does this all mean for us so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into this beautiful holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him, in him, you also are being built together. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so so what? That in Christ He He you know uh, 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 the, the, the law was disarmed. So what? It means this: that now you are the temple. that you are now the dwelling place of God, that yous are the place now where heaven and earth meet. And you look around, and like like, oh, this person represents that? And like, oh, maybe me, you know, maybe me on a good day. But as you look around at the normal people you're sitting with, As you look in the mirror and you believe all these lies about you, I want you to hear this, that now in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. You are the place where heaven and earth meet together. We are the lights in this broken system, in this broken world where God can shine through. And this is the point, that the blessing that was supposed to come to the nations through Israel now come to the nations through Israel's Messiah through Israel's king. And now, as an apprentice of the king, as a disciple of Jesus, you become, listen, you become a conduit of Abraham's blessing. You become a conduit of Abraham's blessing. You are now incorporated into the divine life, love, and mission of this beautiful God. And this means this that the church is not a product for you to consume. Please, let, let's just sign off on this today. I will never go church shopping again. It is not a product for you to consume. It is, the church is the temple of God. It is the people of God. The church is together bearing witness to the rule and the reign of God. The church is not a club to join. It is a training ground to fulfill our vocation as kings and queens of this earth. The church is a place for the lost and for the weak, for the broken, the ones that the systems of the world have disregarded. And nevertheless, it is a people to belong to, to find healing and to find strength, to find wholeness, not a place where we come to simply receive, receive, receive. And in return, let me give some criticism. It is a blood-bought, beautiful bride of Christ. And so... A question we must ask ourselves is How have I used, how have we used the things that God has given us to build a bridge to other people to actually keep them out? What is your view of people who are ethnically different than you? Do you have something of an internal and implicit hierarchy of the kinds of people that deserve grace or dignity or compassion? Do you judge people by their postcode, their worth by their po- Oh, they live there. Oh, ooh, they live there. I, I, I know what kind of person that is because, well, they told me where they live. Is there anyone in your life right now, a coworker, a neighbor, a mom, where there is somewhat of a wall of hostility between you? And what does the gospel say? about that wall of hostility, because whatever you have now, you have for the sake of the world. Whatever blessings you have received, whatever knowledge that you have, whatever grace that you have, whatever gifts that you have, whatever money and talent that you have, God has given to you for the sake of the world. He chose you in Christ to be a conduit of his life, of his blessing, of his presence to the world, Our lives together are now, not, not just my life, but our lives together are now the primary place where heaven and earth overlap. My life on its own cannot bear the weight of bearing witness to the crucified and risen Messiah. But as I close here, I want to say this. My call to you this afternoon is this. To put away, Anchor Church, put away these small visions of what it means to follow Jesus. Put away these anemic mindsets thinking that you can be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a worshiper of Jesus on your own. You need others. We need each other. And I believe that if we truly begin to understand that the cross of Christ has just as much to say about our social relations with one another than what it has to say between us and God, then we begin to unlock much of its power to transform. If we really began to see that the gospel doesn't just heal our personal vertical relationship with God, but that it breaks down the barriers of hostility between people groups, then, then we would really begin to grow up into the church that I believe God is calling us to. I wonder, I wonder what kind of force we would be in our homes and our places of study at play, at the office, gym, and in the boardroom, in the classroom, in our communities, if we took on this vision. That the cross has much, as much to say about our horizontal relationships than it does with our vertical one. And so my call for you is to put away these small visions of what it means to follow Jesus. Come together and understand that in Christ you have been given everything. That now in Messiah Jesus, you are an heir of the universe. There is nothing that will be withheld from you in the age to come. And so if you're here and you're you're wondering about what what this all means for you, if, if you're not walking with Jesus, I invite you to walk in and to say yes to the greatest adventure of your life, to partner with God in what he is doing in this world, to do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home. Let me pray for us. Father, we we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have not left us without a witness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your body, in your flesh, the walls of hostility have come down. And that you've given us a vision, not just for our personal lives in walking with you, Lord, but that we walk with you. That we all together bear witness to the rule and reign of Jesus. And now we are made into this temple. This temple where heaven and earth meet. This temple where people can come and see what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to fulfill our human calling. And so for all these things, Lord, I I pray for your people now. I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would confirm things. I pray that you would be convicting Holy Spirit. And I pray more than anything, Lord, that you would be saving even now, that people will see the beauty, Lord, of what it means to be a disciple of the King. we thank you for all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.